All right, Dr. Coons. I, I do think this very much applies and it is what's just happening around us right now, I think in many ways, although not everyone knows and a lot of people don't know. So why not open our final discussion on the intersection of government and religion by asking you to detail the value and life of Henry Kissinger? <laughs> so that's that's a wonderful question because if you know the story of Henry Kissinger, you know the story of a lot of the 20th century. He comes to America in the 1930s. I believe I believe he's from what was Austria-Hungary. Don't quote me on that. It might be Germany proper, but he immediately is extremely successful and flies to the top of the academic heap at Harvard and is a very young professor there but tries to put what he knows about history and international relations into practice and ends up as a longtime diplomat in all kinds of roles, including at one time as Secretary of State as well as National Security Advisor at the same time. So he's kind of indispensable for understanding foreign policy in the 20th century, particularly America's, but also lots of places. I, I don't think he... Uh, <laughs> I don't think that means he's a wonderful man or something, but let me say this by way of opening that people celebrating the death of Henry Kissinger, particularly on the left, are using Kissinger as a scapegoat or a representative of something evil. He's sort of like a proxy for Richard Nixon. So because they can't gloat over the death of Nixon, because that was back in the 90s, they can gloat over the death of Kissinger at 100. A lot of that, therefore, has to do with their understanding, and we've been talking about this on the Monday show, of the Vietnam War and its significance, whether we should have been there at all. Not that the left doesn't get bloodthirsty for wars at various times, just that they hate the Vietnam War. So... That's that's one thing is that they're going to be extremely angry about Kissinger. I I actually think that if there's something that you want to be angry at Kissinger about, it should be what I think was ultimately a certain great naivete about opening up China. That that was a sort of a, it was an accomplishment to wean the Chinese away from the Russians or this they were the Soviets at the time, but they. Soviets, Russians, I mean, six of one, half dozen of the other. But that when we did that, a, a natural divergent interest that the Chinese have from the Russians, and you, know, and you could name dozens of those, we didn't need to do it in the way that we did, whereby we ultimately ceded our economic sovereignty essentially to the Chinese. We made them, China became in for the United States, what certain parts of the United States had been to the entire United States. So if we were manufacturing textiles in North Carolina before then, we destroyed that for the sake of getting it even more cheaply from China. And it might be kind of strange in that way to say that Kissinger was doing something naive because without Kissinger, Nixon doesn't open up China as, as it were. But we had actually made that mistake a long time earlier. The Americans had been a big part of trading with the Chinese in the 19th century when everyone was limited to the port of Canton, which is Guangzhou. 
and the Americans had been muscled out by not really understanding what the Chinese long-term game was. And uh, other other Western powers had actually gained more from that because they were a little more savvy. I therefore can, I, I can Americans yeah. can Americans understand a long game? I mean, there there's something there. Just that's about a good, the, that's a good question. Yeah. That's a good question. And 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 Kissinger in in a in a fundamental way, and I'm not saying this like yeah, I mean his his English was like accented his whole life. I think he just you know, there's an age and if you immigrate after that age, like, you know, your, your accent is just going to be there. Like you can't get rid of it. But if you come when you're like four, you know, but I, but I mean it in this way that partly, partly by virtue of his education and partly by virtue of his background, Kissinger is a European thinker. So there's something ironic in this that he's used to thinking on long time scales. His favorite historical thinker and he wrote his harvard undergraduate thesis about about this guy oswald spengler along with two other kind of big historians guys thinking about universal scales of history cosmic scales of history his favorite thinker is all about the very very long term and the 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 central idea there being and this is where kissinger can be can be fairly profound if you read his his magnum opus which is i think just called diplomacy or his memoirs uh, not that memoirs aren't always self-serving in some way but it, it's at least interesting is that he connects and he was trying to do this and I, I think he failed to do this with the chinese he connects as spengler does civilizations do not manifest symptoms of health or sickness alone so they don't they don't you you don't for instance have like a plummeting birth rate like you do in south korea or italy and everything else is fine that doesn't happen things rise and fall together things flourish or uh wither on the vine together so that that should enable you to have a very long term view of things i think in the case of the chinese they failed to they kind of saw the triumph they were achieving and and within the terms of the cold war it was a triumph because it it neutralized the demographically largest communist country in the world okay that that was a diplomatic triumph in the long term the means by which that occurred and the chinese obviously and i i think this is kind of important but for all his training in European diplomacy, you know, I don't, I don't think Kissinger spoke Mandarin or something. The Chinese don't, <laughs> the Chinese Communist Party doesn't even particularly think of itself as communist exactly. Not in the, I mean, Maoism is not the same thing as Marxism, Leninism, and it has a, a nationalistic element to it, very similar to North Korea, that is a little bit different than the internationally inclined communism that comes out of uh, out of Europe or at least European Russia. And I think that they failed to see that. Can an American fail to see the long game? Pretty much all the time, right? Kissinger in that way isn't isn't quite American because in other ways he sees the long game in a big way. You know, and he gives this last interview like I don't know last month or something and he's talking about we have, you know, basically like immigration has created complete chaos in every western country 
you know, we kind of see that on the southern border on a daily basis right now. But so I, I, I think that he thinks in those terms, right? But I think he failed to think in those terms in in the case of China. And that really in a in a an enormous irony is the is the very thing that long term is going to destabilize the United States. If we don't permit the rise of China and even foster it economically, we're not dealing in 2023 with a so-called rising multipolar world where our power is about to be eclipsed. He reminds me of a, a character to me from history whose name I'm going to be ignorant and not remember, but I know he's instrumental to peace up to World War One. I. I know you'll be able to think of his name. He was a baron of sorts who spent a lot of time traveling about Europe, marrying houses to each other, keeping everything working the way that it ought. And yet the fragile infrastructure that was built was unable to sustain itself in the face of the real social dynamic changes that were taking place, particularly in places like Germany. So do you have any thoughts about that time period and its connection and or the name? I know you know his name. He's so famous. I, I, I can't think of him off the top of my head, but I mean, oh, man. I, yeah, I, okay. I, I would say I would say that Kissinger, obviously, if he's 100 years old, he's born after the First World War. And if you're born in Europe after the First World War, you're coming up in a world in which the fact of the fact of peace's destruction is still shocking to everyone and and you can see this if you read anything about the first world war down through the 60s and the 70s and now people just sort of ignore it and anyone who was alive during it is 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 dead now certainly an adult is dead now because what you're dealing with is something that people in retrospect were shocked even occurred. How did this happen? Especially because, you know, three grandsons of Queen Victoria were on various major European thrones at the time of the First World War. So how, how did, when, when Europe's royalty was more integrated maritally, familially, than it had ever been before, how did this happen? And one of the insights that I think Kissinger can bring to analyzing history, particularly Europe before the First World War, is that when diplomacy fails, when when real interests are not taken into account, and again, I think this is some of the irony of how he handled China, but when real interests are not taken to, into account, that cannot, you know, that cannot somehow be overcome by diplomatic charm or by sheer force of personality so that one of the things that you're doing when you are negotiating with people is you are trying to take into account not just who they are and how they handle things but also what what their long-term interests are and in the case of europe before the first world war the long-term interests of the various parties that would end up killing each other in enormous numbers and at enormous percentages of their adult male population yeah, they were they were highly integrated in ways that they never had been before, through railroads, through dynastic marriages, through all kinds of means. But at the same time, their divergent interests were setting them on a you know collision course. And the reason that that happens in the Balkans is because in the Balkans, you have people who have no overseas interests, unlike all of the other colonial powers, even including Germany by that point, and also nothing to lose. 
so that when you're dealing with people who have nothing to lose except what they understand to be the reality of their country, the integrity of their homeland, not just a mm-hmm. colony, but in the case of the Serbians, they're understanding that you know here in Kosovo and to some extent in Bosnia and and so on and so and so on and so forth, you know these are Serbians, right? You know, Franz Ferdinand is executed, assassinated by Serbians in Bosnia, not by Bosniaks, which are the kind of majority Muslim population there. So when you don't understand what desperate people will do in a situation where they really have nothing else they feel they can do, then you you really are going to basically history is going to catch you sort of like an improvised explosive device. Right. And you're going to look back and think, how did I, you know, how did I drive over that? Or, or how did I not anticipate that that was planted in the road? Well, the reason you didn't is because you became accustomed to the kinds of people who don't put such devices in the roadway. And you forgot that the world contains plenty of people who do. I think generally Kissinger remember that the world contains plenty of people who do. And that the art of diplomacy is largely an art of mitigating the harshness and the unpredictability and the instability of such a world, whether you're talking about the kind of Europe that that was just before he was born or the one that caused his family to leave Europe in anticipation of the Second World War, whatever. But diplomacy is an effort to overcome the fact of incessant human conflict through some kind of prescribed means. And if you look at its history, honestly, yeah, it's old in the sense that states have always been telling each other what they're thinking of doing or what they'd like to do or how they'd like to create an alliance or something. But with all the protocols and permanent representation and permanent effort to speak the local language and understand the local people and the local government, diplomacy with all of its framework and all it's not really that old, right? We, we've, we've been sending permanent ambassadors with permanent staff all over the world really since about the time of Napoleon. And whether that, whether that goes away as the world becomes increasingly incoherent, I don't know. But what Kissinger was trying to do, particularly in his writing as well as in his work, was to in some measure preserve that world and there's something that if you watch interviews with him, you're like, okay, I, I think you're actually an intelligent human being. And you, you often, you know, you know what you're talking about. <laughs> this, this, this lives by way of contrast with, in my mind, the way that our diplomats often appear in public now, where we're sort of like, they sound sort of like community organizers, you know, demanding things of like, the LA city council or something, you know, all wearing the same screen printed t-shirts or something with a slogan on it. You know, we're, you know, we demand things of the Chinese, the Chinese aren't taking us seriously, you know, or go, go do like a, do like an image search and try to find just screenshots of all the times that someone has said that, you know, Putin is, is about to fall or Assad is about to fall. And our diplomats have, you know, predicted similar things right along the way for a decade or more, and it hasn't happened. That that's all a, a decline in diplomacy is always a decline in and in 
in the capacity to actually handle the existence of other nations and of other peoples seriously. Right. Mm. There's, you know, there's, there's an irony where the more obsessed with diversity we become, the less able we are to understand other nations and, and therefore to have other nations take us seriously when we talk. When you were talking about the, those who've lost everything is, is not hard to, to think of the scenario that many Americans do find themselves in increasingly. So it would seem not that they are on the verge of squalor, but that they're on the verge of losing their way of life, Yeah, which for all of us who are alive at this point is a shared experience. Even if you got the phones, you know, when you were born or later, we're all still living on the same timeline, except I guess there's two post 2020, right? There's, there's a blip of some kind there, but I think out of all that, the thing to, to take that is probably most valuable for our, our forward discussion is to see that the opening if i'm if i'm misunderstanding you please correct us the, the the opening up of china by american real politic was a temporal win in the short game that had to be won or we would lose bigger later but it's part of an ongoing larger probable loss to the influence of the larger supercontinent and the larger superpopulation on the planet that has an older agenda than our own. And while we came along and said, be our friends, here's some money, they care about honor. We probably, you know, had already offended them plenty. From there, you know, we can kind of move into our discussion, I think a little bit about God and politics. Although Mm -hmm. I just want to hat tip, you didn't mention Klaus Schwab. Are, Are you familiar with the connection I've heard, but I don't trust anybody? that Kissinger and Schwab were, were good buddies. Yeah, I I have heard of that. And, you know, this is why when you're thinking about any any figure, so I guess it's kind of important as maybe more of a, a meta point about the kinds of things that we talk about on the show. Something you'll notice about the construction of theories of, you know, how things actually work and and who's pulling the strings and stuff like that will will generally fixate on certain figures. So I would suggest that for particularly for the left, Henry Kissinger plays roughly the same role that for people on the right, whether politically affiliated or not, people like Klaus Schwab or George Soros play. And what what gets combined there is a certain amount of truth with a certain amount of not even falsehood, but kind of like a illegitimate filling in the blanks. So like you don't really know the answer, but you want to get the assignment done. So you just you just fill in all the stuff you don't really know, right? Or um, when you take standardized tests, you, you know, it's it's a good thing to do this. You're probably going to get more right than if you don't, where you do everything you know, and then you go back to the questions that you skipped over the first time and you just guess something. And that happens with these figures because it's much easier for people's brains to focus on people rather than undergoing, you know, an an analysis of something that would have to include not only people, but also you could say trends or historical realities or whatever. So I'll give you an example in the case of China and China opening up. So you could say, okay, well, 
the the pivotal character, right? The the guy that really changes all this is not Henry Kissinger. Okay, fine. It's Deng Xiaoping who is going to open up China uh, economically starting in the in the late 70s going into the 80s where China becomes like your, you know, El Cheapo manufacturing hub for everything, which it which it is is to some degree still today, right? So it's it's Deng Xiaoping, right? The difficulty there is that, okay, now you're fixated. So now you think everything is about Henry Kissinger that's evil about American foreign policy, or everything is about Klaus Schwab that's evil about international finance and politics, whatever it is, right? You've got your guy. It's it's a killer thing on the right to state that some district attorney and wherever America was elected by, you know, money from George that, that, that they're Soros backed. That doesn't mean that those people aren't doing those things. I'm totally fine admitting that the, the problem is it makes you extremely short-sighted. So it turns you into somebody who really can't see anything else. If you don't have permissible manipulation of international currency markets, you don't have George Soros. If you don't have a gathering that has been incentivized by all kinds of people over the years, you you don't have Klaus Schwab, right? Davos doesn't matter because of Klaus Schwab alone. America's foreign policy, whether you liked it or not, or you wish that he had been more idealistic, Kissinger is in an opposite camp from, say, kind of a George W. Bush sort of a person in terms of just sheer foreign policy orientation. When you when you fixate on one person and not on the trends and not on this and not on all of these other things that are going on, not on what would motivate the Chinese to want to have some kind of national pride again in themselves, similar to when they they came back from the opium wars and the humiliations in the opium wars in the 19th century, then you don't understand what you're dealing with. And you think that if you just take out one person, everything will change. This was the delusion behind the idea that Trump could go in and fix everything. Without an apparatus to do so with him and for him, he can't really do a lot, right? And a lot of us have been conditioned also by the fact that the talking heads that we see or the voices that we're familiar with are their people. They're not long-term dynamics. They're not some big report on how the federal bureaucracy is going to effectively stymie Trump or whatever other trends or groups you're thinking of. And one thing that a lot of us struggle to understand is how important long-term trends like a fertility rate, like I mentioned earlier in East Asia or Europe or whatever, but also how important groups are that, you know, Kissinger might be really smart, but on his own, now that he's dead, you can see in 50 years, well, what is his legacy? Well, Probably nobody will remember him, practically speaking, almost nobody. And if I remember him, you know, that doesn't count. But that you need large numbers of people in order to achieve long-term effective change. What the Chinese had when we began to open up to them 
is they had enormous numbers of people starving for a an economically better life because they had basically destroyed themselves through civil war. And then if you want to call their cultural revolution in the 60s a, a kind of civil war, I don't think that would be wrong. Everybody agreed they wanted things to get better. Okay. Everybody agreed that they needed a place in the sun, to use a phrase from before World War I. That's a very different dynamic in any nation than the idea that one brilliant guy or one horribly evil guy is going to change everything. And I think that sort of, you know, sort of comic book thinking is where a lot of us are and where and and it's what a lot of us default to because we're not aware that no matter how smart somebody like Kissinger is or how capable or how evil someone is or whatever, there's only a certain amount he can achieve on his own. And that if you're trying to either bolster what someone is doing or tear it down, you need generally large amounts of coordination to do so. Damn, dies. his plans perish with him. Uh, Dr. Coons, this, this is in jest. I'll just hat tip you so it doesn't feel too bad. But, but uh, and did you have to read about that strategy for guessing in a book or did you actually guess on tests in your life? I, I'm having trouble believing the second can be true. I I taught other people how to take standardized tests at one point, but no, I I uh, I don't guess and skip. I just uh, just figure it out. I love it. It was like a lifesaver to me. I cared so little, and I read one book, and it said, you know, don't care about the question, outsmart the question, and it taught me how. And and I you know I didn't get into MIT, but I didn't want to. So let's get to uh, God and politics here again yeah. with our yeah, latter two kind of categories for the relationship between the sword government the left hand there's lots of ways to talk about this the state yeah it's really kind of a way we've been talking about it and then what what is what is religion we're, we're not talking about the i'm spiritual not religious stuff although all y'all you're part of a religion you just are sheep but but we are talking about that that there is there are these movements and trends of power base in history observable without the sword, but more with the tongue right. and usually moving on some channel of a story of justification. How do these things relate? You can't avoid them. And what are Christians to do? Do you want to summarize the first four for us before we get into the last two? Yeah, because we have, we've been on this for a while and you may have forgotten, but the, the I first, have. <laughs> right. Yeah. The first one, the first one is essentially the way that things work in an explicitly communist state. And Nacelli, the writer of this piece with these, I think, helpful categories, helpful, not immaculate, but helpful, is what he calls secular suppression, where the government just obliterates religion. That happens in various ways in Marxist states, but that's that's the option there. Number two is complete separation of government and religion. And that's going to be familiar. We talked a lot about the the modern Anabaptist-like thinker, although he's an Episcopalian named Stanley Hauerwas, but that is the historic Anabaptist position that religion and government just have absolutely nothing to do with each other. Number three is that they are neutral or that government specifically is neutral concerning particular religions. And that there is a wall of separation between them. That's going to be identified with classic liberalism. Um, Nacelli names John Rawls, but you could get forebears, two Rawls in there. Number four is religious influence, meaning religion 
influences what's going on in politics, influences what's going on in government, but there's no institutional component to how that works. And that that's where it began to be, I think, fairly familiar to listeners because that is partly because of the predominance of Baptists in American history. That is the way that a lot of American religion has actually functioned and how American public life has functioned. And it is the default position of a lot of, you know, let's say sort of mainstream conservative Christian celebrities, your John Pipers, your Robbie Georges, your your Tim Kellers, that you want religion to influence government, but there's absolutely no institutional component to that whatsoever. So that the government still functions in an institutional sense in a completely secular manner without taking account of any religion in particular. That's going to be different from both things that are older in our own history, as well as in a lot of denominations that are not Baptist, which is view number five, that the government and and religion overlap and that they're specifically going to overlap, if we can put this in catechism terms, they're going to overlap on the Ten Commandments, all ten, not just the second table of the law. And Nacelli identifies that fifth position with what he calls the magisterial reformers. And that's that's the historical name for the church, the, the Protestant churches that end up governing countries, which is going to be essentially Lutherans, Anglicans, and Reformed. And they all agree on this concept that government and religion overlap not just in subject matter, but also institutionally, and that the government should uphold the Ten Commandments and should therefore also guard the church so that the church can carry out its task. And that's what you're going to find, for instance, in American history in uh, New England, but it's what you're going to find in the Reformation in practically any country. So, those are the first five views. Six and seven are going to be very interrelated. But do you want to talk about one through five before oh, we go on? You know, I must have I must have just missed that there's a seventh. So no, I have six. Okay, and that that would that would take me to number five right there, right? Yeah. The only thing I would say, I guess, in addition to this, is because I don't think we spent a lot of time on that Ten Commandment part and the Reformation option would be that. The notion that there are truths built into nature, yeah. this is like your your talking point, that are utterly observable to the level where if you try to go against what is obviously observable, it will blow back on you with fire, yeah. right. to be metaphorical. Right. And that the insight that there is such a law <laughs> first. <laughs> that there is such a law that man can know. I think that that's profound itself. And that any civilization, pagan or others, that aspires to such a thing is probably gonna do better. Yeah. But then from there, that that in Moses, we kind of got it. Like it, it really was there, right? And and it's not, not in every single way that he judged every account between every neighbor, although there's wisdom as to how he applied the great law of love to it all. But that the Ten Commandments as a as a universal summary describe and and overflow with the, the framework right. for human existence. And I, I'll just kind of say, I wrote a book about it. It's called Echo. It's quite a few years old now, but it's pretty good. You Catholics should pick it up. You might like it. Hallelujah. Go. 
when we're thinking about the Ten Commandments, I I think that in inside our own walls as Lutherans, we have trouble understanding what's going on here because we talk about them almost exclusively in terms of what Lutherans call the second use of the law, what the Reformed often call the third use of the law, which is the theological use of the law or the accusatory use of the law. And that is helpful, obviously, in many ways, but doesn't really explain how or why societies use and how or why the magisterial reformers of various Protestant confessions used or Catholics used the Ten Commandments as the basis for law. And that really has to do more with what's called the first use of the law, that is the law as a curb, and the understanding that the Ten Commandments reflect God's will, so that when they're talking about, for instance, the first commandment, they will often bring up an observation from nature, which is, wow, there doesn't really appear to be a human society with no religion. Everybody's got a religion. That's weird. It's almost like they have to have one, right? Perverted or not, they have to have one. And what's unfortunate about this is that, you know, and Nacelli brings this up when he talks about modern examples of View 5, is that if this gets sidelined rhetorically as, quote, Christian nationalism, whatever that is, because who knows what that is? And does it mean that I, like, that I I wear a t-shirt with like Doug Wilson's face on it every night. Like when I'm, you know, going to bed, like, because yeah, I just bobblehead or his pop figure. The great. Right. Exactly. Like, you know, it's really easy to sideline people when you assign a term to them and then you don't have to take seriously the ideas that they're saying, you know, is that, okay, fine. You don't want to be a Christian nationalist. Great. Can I, I don't care. Call yourself the Lorax. I don't care. <laughs> but what, but what you need to do is ask yourself, can we have a society that takes no account of the 10 commandments? Yeah. No, I, I, I just want to chime in on Christian nationalism. Your point is valid and we're gonna go right up past this, but, but I've been listening to this terminology now since you brought it up. I hadn't heard the term until you brought it up. And you know, and, and then it showed up in the news. So it's like, I'm glad I listened to the show. Because <laughs> it tipped me <laughs> That's off. Right. Yeah, That's right, what's right. coming, right? And 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 so it showed up in the news. And I've just kind of watched the story as it's as it's played itself. And I'm convinced. I, I think it's very, very clear. The only reason they use the term really is because it has the word Christian on the front and they can sneer when they say it. And a majority of people are trained by their television watching habits to kind of agree. Yeah. And that's it. Whatever nationalism no, means, that's nobody right. knows what that means. No one has that's a clue right. what nationalism means. <laughs> Duh. Uh, but but you say Christian, and oh my goodness, they are weird. They like, they do weird stuff. We could go off on more recent no, that's right. Senate that's talk, right. talk about yeah. Catholics you know, going after the FBI. I don't know if you saw the, the testimony about yes. you know, one of the senators was going after the FBI. And all this. But I think we should stick with our, our main point, uh, the hammer and the curb of the first use I, I gotta point it out though i love it that we can't even as lutherans are reformed we can't even agree on what number the second use is that's we, great that's our got, problem guys <laughs> we've got a weird <laughs> numbering thing it's a in in german the the lutherans say fata unser to say the our father and the reform say unser fata so yeah so so we got to go. get around those things but let's start with the yeah. natural law of the curb is so unavoidably real that as you point out you know, everyone has a God. 
Right. And if, if some guy says, I don't have a God, just watch what he does with his body for a week and a half. And you'll see what he bows down to, right? It's there. And so from there, everything else kind of unfolds as, again, a framework for for government yes. that the church must apply inside the church too, actually, right? So there, there's a government inside the church that isn't the state, but it, it, we, we, we Lutherans can't talk about it, right? We don't even have a way to talk about this stuff. And there's a, in, under, under this view five idea, and, and if you have this article, and we'll try to put it in the show notes again, but I would encourage you to look up the names. So go look up Luther's writings on government. Go look up Johannes Althusius is a really interesting thinker. Look him up. Richard Hooker, an, an Anglican writer. What you're going to find is that they don't want the government to, as it were, enforce religion for the church. So what's interesting about this framework is that one, it's a little bit misleading to talk about government in, in a way I like talk, saying politics a little bit better because churches have to have government too. And, and if a church does not have self-government, that is, it's not, for instance, exercising church discipline, it's not actually ensuring the purity of its preaching, then the government shouldn't do that for the church, okay? And the magisterial reformers did not envision that the government would do that for the church. They saw the government as being a help meet or a, a nurse was the idea that they they drew from the Psalms that the government would assist and and foster the work of the church. That was the idea. Okay. You can throw it aside. You can say Luther didn't know what he was talking about, whatever you want to do. But that was the thinking, right? But if the government's doing that, the government can't do the church's job for it. So the, the line of conflict was always inside a polity, a kingdom, a, a, a margraviate to call back to our love of margraves on the show. That's right. Right. The line of conflict was always basically the church having to tell the prince, the margrave, the whoever to back off. You can't do this for me. The <laughs> So that's what you have to deal with. I mean, John Calvin is is exiled from Geneva at one point because of this, because he won't bow down to what the city council wants him to do. Okay. I think sometimes Lutherans underestimate the degree to, to how important this was because number one, they don't read the book of Concord. So they don't, they fail to notice how these are public legal documents attested to by kingdoms and, and princes and, and cities. But it's also because Luther will say things like, you know, there's this, it's sort of famous, like, I didn't, you know, the, the gospel made its, the word of God made its progress through the world as, you know, Melanchthon and I drank Wittenberg beer. You know, it's like, did you forget about every prince who like put his neck on the line? And in some cases fought wars to make sure that his territory could be uh, evangelical territory. So there's a lot of work here that that goes into making things open and free for the proclamation of the gospel to exist in a country. And that work is done in the Reformation. That's why it's called magisterial. It has to do with magistrates. That work is done by magistrates who want to foster the proclamation of the gospel. If we ever saw anything like this in America, Christian nationalism, I mean, and I, I think 
paying attention to the adjective there is brilliant because when Congress passed the kind of anti-anti-Zionist resolution that they did recently, nobody used the term Jewish nationalism, even though that's literally what the modern nation state of Israel is. Nobody used that term. Nobody, we weren't supposed to be scared of that. If we ever had anything like, quote, Christian nationalism in America, it would probably happen locally or, or statewide before it would happen anywhere else. Similar to the way that the Reformation did, where you have a polity, Holy Roman Empire in Reformation times, United States of America now sort of falling apart in various ways. The glue holding it together is, you know, decaying. And this guy decides to go in this direction. And this guy decides to go in that direction. That's probably what you would see. But that all depends on the government wanting to foster the church, not to do the church's job for it. So then from there, we have the government as extension of religion. And yeah. I, I really like how you distinguish between, you know, the, the the church having the government do the church's job and the government protecting the right of the church to do the church's job. Yeah, right. Right. And then now we're moving into a realm where we're going to have the government doing the church's job. Because, yeah. Yeah. Go. Because views six and seven are just mirror images of each other. That's why my numbers are off. Right. View six is that religion rules over government. Okay. That, and then view seven is that government rules over religion. What that's fundamentally going to do is that it's a confusion of, if you want to put it in these magisterial reformation terms, that's a that's a confusion of vocation or calling. In the case of view six, the helpful example Nacelli uses is, for example, like the papal states or the papacy through much of medieval and early modern history, where not only does every once in a while the Pope goes to war, which produced like some cool art, you know, but what happens there is that religion is doing government's job. And the difficulty there is we we're Christians. We, we believe that religion and politics are, if they're not separate, but they're not the same. So in the same way that I'm not the father of your family, I can't do that job for you. Even if I try, even if I just claim I should, I can't. Right. So when you're talking about vocational confusion, not just on an individual level, but on a collective level, on a societal level, on an organizational level, when you have confusion about vocation, what you're going to have is enormous dysfunction And the example from the Middle Ages that Nacelli uses for religion over government is the two swords doctrine, which is that there's a sword for of the church and there's a sword for the state. Notice that in scripture, you know, there's the sword of the word of God. It doesn't really operate and therefore the church doesn't operate in the way that the sword of like Romans 13 does. But the idea in the Middle Ages was the Pope has both swords. That's why the Pope can tell you who's supposed to be the next emperor, or the Pope can tell you who should be the king uh, now in Portugal or wherever it might be, because the the the, gov- the the government is really subservient to the church or to religion, generally speaking. And this is not 
scriptural. It can't account for any society that is not entirely uh, Christianized. And even if it were Christianized, it can't account for the fact of what is the church actually supposed to do? And the church is not here to execute civil punishments or to put armies into the field. Okay. But view number six <laughs> would actually have, and, and that's why we have had in the history of Christianity, armies put into the field under the banner of, you know, the Bishop of Rome or, or this other Bishop or, or whoever, usually they're bishops, right? Because those are the guys with enough resources to begin to field armies. So you have, you have house fathers as the, the normative calling of, of every man yeah. under God. And, and then you have city fathers and, and above, right? And, and from the old world king on, you know, I, I build a wall, I give you bread, I am king. Son of God and all this is city fathers is, is a form. And then you have natural law again here, although Christianity and Judaism certainly make it very, very clear because we tend to be very, very clear about good things. Moses is like that. But you you're gonna have the holy man in the village. And I don't know, you know, how that ties to house father, city father, what is this guy? You know, insider outsider, fool and jester, you know, the the the, the way the the types of or the archetypes that this character takes in in every civilization are are quite varied, but certainly among the Christian understanding of this then. This is the storyteller, the leader of the song, the proclaimer of the identity for all that that trans, transcends the house father and the city father, and even beyond them both to to the all father. Ha 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 ha! Odinism, listen, uh, but we got the real one, our father, right? As you mentioned earlier. So, yeah, thoughts there. I think that when you're when you're thinking about religion and politics. If you forget that there are lower levels of all of these things, then it becomes a lot harder to understand what's what's being talked about. So in the same way, and we might have mentioned this earlier in the series, that the pastor cannot replace the father as the leader of the household religiously, then you also realize that at a larger scale, the government and the church cannot replace each other. I, I think that what is you're going to see as extremely common about history is that history is largely a tale of people trying to do other people's jobs. In this, <laughs> <Yes>. Right. Right. <laughs> In the same way that probably when you go to work, that's a lot of your conflict at work is somebody's trying to do your job oh, or I guarantee and in your marriage, every argument is yeah, it's just this, it's, and, and it's all you're over. not really doing your job to its fullest extent, but you know what that guy should be doing. I mean, that's that's a lot of story, and that's I mean, that's really view six, but it's also seven, and and seven is a lot more common where government wants to do religion's job for it. The examples of this that Nacelli uses are from all over time and all over the world, ancient Egypt, all the way to modern Islam and Saudi Arabia, back to maybe he thinks Henry VIII in England in the Reformation. So, so just to, to clarify, yeah, that then, right. you know, this is the normative answer for history. <laughs> Like, the like normative, history. <laughs> well, the, the reason that the normative answer for history is not just vocational confusion, but when you're talking about religion and politics, specifically the government 
not necessarily obliterating religion. That was view one. I'm not entirely sure how common that is, because even in communist countries, what really mm-hmm. happened is that and 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 what happens anytime that religious figures are afraid of what the government will do to them is that it's far more common along the lines of view seven for the government to simply dominate and define religion be it now that might that might be fine with you in a in a religious case where your religion aligns really easily with the interests of the state so in the case of Sunni Islam or Shi'i Islam or the form of orthodoxy that is common in Israel today or certain very ethnically specific forms of Christian Eastern Orthodoxy in Bulgaria or Serbia, where your religion has any aspect that will not be entirely supportive of everything that the state thinks and does and cannot be defined by the state because it's defined by, say, the Bible, then you're going to have conflict and you're going to have problems. But the reason that government most often defines and dominates religion is because government exercises power now, right? The power that any religion has, even in ancient Egypt, which is a power to define and to prepare you for the journey to the next world, right? To the the great West is where you would go if you were Egyptian. You would go to the West when you died and then your heart would be judged and weighed is that the power of essentially any religion is a power over and concerning invisible real things. You're even going to hear this at Christmas time because we're going to talk about the, the coming of the Christ and you're going to be taught in the proper preface for Christmas to love those things which are not seen. If you're dealing in invisible things, whether you're talking about love or guilt or death, then you are going to have trouble opposing things that are visible and real, like soldiers on your doorstep. That's the way it always goes. So view number seven is going to be historically extremely prevalent because if everyone wants to do everyone else's job, then of course government is going to want to do religion's job for it. Okay. And it might not obliterate it. It might leave it be, but say, this is what you can talk about and this is what you can do. And this is what you're, which is very different from the reformational idea that they work in tandem within their own limited spheres. View seven is the sphere of religion is inside the sphere of government. So government will define what that is and then make sure that religion does what it wants. And the inability to see layers of governance seems to be one of the the holes in this to me as as a framework. I mean, I like yeah. what this yeah, has what do done. Well, I'm not sure yet. And I, I'm not even sure I meant to say that. But what I what I mean is this for sure. Okay? okay. So I think that story number one, government against religion, is in itself a really, really clever religion that has spent several hundred years making us have this argument, but itself is kind of a form of government as religion because that's what what must happen. And eventually we'll resort, we'll return to that. So the story that there is no God will be replaced by the divine man of some kind, whoever that might be. And then great man theory fits into all of this. So I don't think that this is, I'm trying to say that this is not valuable, but that this is like a spectrum of things, right? And that 
in, in one sense, you get to one end, you end up at the other end. Yeah, you do. And, yep. Yeah. And and that that's more or less what I'm getting at, I think. Yeah. And I, I, I think that what they what what Nacelli maybe failed to take account of was that view number one is is actually tremendously rare. That even in the case of communist states where the antagonism to religion is extremely clear. And in the case of, say, communist China, the obliteration of Christian missions was extensive. Okay. Nonetheless, to completely expunge religion is so much work. It, it's it's almost impossible for anyone actually to accomplish. So view seven is much more common, much easier to accomplish that even if I'm not going to participate and communist figures don't have to participate in religion, right? The religious affiliation of our elected officials in most states doesn't matter anymore in America. That that should actually tell you a lot, mm -hmm. right? Who are they? Do they go anywhere? What do they think? It doesn't matter anymore, right? Or if it does, Christianity is a negative, right? If it's brought up, Christianity is probably a negative apart from certain places, certain congressional districts. If you're a Christian, you are a Christian nationalist and you're probably white. Yeah. I mean, there there are all kinds of right, intersectional, right? There are all kinds of factors that would be detrimental to you. But the idea that you practice no particular religion would not at all be detrimental. Not no, necessarily. It'd be, it'd be an asset and it would gain you pleasure with the, the enemy. Uh, the, the tribal warlords, <clears throat> as they dance their 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 evil dances would say we hate you and you say but evolution and they would say oh you are one of ours and yeah. you know get out of our way so right yeah right. intersectionality but, again kind of but, <laughs> but i but i think that the i i it's it's extremely rare that they just try to obliterate it i mean what's yeah. much more effective is that you would say this is what you're allowed to talk about okay and and in america they they wouldn't say that say that they would say they would they would give you indirect like well, you're going to lose your tax exempt status or the indirect sense that that's not appropriate or whatever okay and then now you've got your little sphere and you can operate in your little sphere now here are all these other things that people could also be doing so you know they they could do all kinds of other things with their life besides go to church we're going to we're going to make sure that's fine right that that's much more effective Okay. And politically, it's much savvier to let something kind of die in obscurity or to shrink to irrelevance. Okay. Whether numerically or topically or whatever, just irrelevance than it is to try to actively suppress it. And because and the, the Chinese government, I always, I always think like, are you guys, do you just not have any grasp of like human nature? Okay. The Chinese are like, well, what should we do with Christianity? Let's periodically just bulldoze churches when they get too big. Well, what do you think is going to happen, right? It's what happens in the book of Acts when they actively persecute the Jerusalem church. You get more churches out of it. It's much more effective to make people apathetic than to crush them. Because when you crush them, you make someone, some percentage of them think, no, I think I actually believe this. But if you let them be apathetic or like, well, I'm, you know, we're going to be missing church for whatever number of weeks, what it, that's much more effective, right? I, I think that you can much more effectively get rid of religion by providing competition 
and disincentivizing religion than by just trying to absolutely crush it. This is where, you know, the East Germans were really the best at this. I mean, they they have created in mm. Eastern Germany one of the most secular places in the world. Well, through, as you say that, that, that yeah. really brings up, I've had this note sitting here for about, about 45 seconds that yeah. everyone's favorite KGB spy, you know, he loves the Orthodox Church these days. <laughs> And, and he's Mr. Trained His Teeth in, in Eastern Germany. So yeah. I'm thinking he knows what he's doing. And he understands that, well, I got to have a front. <laughs> My religion's got to look like a religion. I can't have no religion. Uh, maybe he's just pious. I, I think that orthodoxy in Russia just has the problems, once again, that it had before the Russian Revolution, which is, is it mostly orthodoxy or is it mostly just Russian? To be honest with you, I'd rather have that set of problems than to have the set of problems that involve how what percentage of my priests in my diocese are actually spies. I, I would much rather have that problem. Today in America, we don't really, let's just say, let's just take our own denomination. We don't really have the problem of, you know, are we too American or are we Lutheran enough? Or, you know, we're, it's more like, you know, what percentage of us are addicted to pornography? Okay. So there is there are ways of corroding Christianity and to corrode it silently or through the creation of apathy is far more powerful than actively to persecute it. Because that that's that's the difference between is it easier to get you out of shape by providing you with nice things to watch and junk food to eat or by, you know, yelling at you to exercise? Well, if I yell at you, that's going to be really unpleasant, but it might actually motivate you like sometimes you might exercise. But if I just distract you and ply you with junk food, then you'll probably never exercise and then you'll definitely be out of shape. So I think that we face in modern America a lot of the same problems that they faced in East Germany, whereby, yeah, sometimes we're actively persecuted. Sometimes we are, you know, spying on each other. But also we just have a lot of apathy and irrelevance to deal with and, and to overcome. And that's a lot harder than if we were than if we were being actively pushed down, right? Like, you know the guy getting dragged out of his church by the Canadian authorities during COVID pushed down. There's a way in which that's far more powerful for the church than the idea that the government's giving us our little reservation to play on and uh, nobody cares and nobody ever comes by. Poison, they say, is a woman's weapon. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here. The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegian.com What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. 
But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest.